If you have a copy of the scriptures in your hands, I ask that you would turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. It's probably the last page or two in your Bible this morning. And the title of the message today is Eyes Wide Open. Eyes Wide Open. And this morning we will be looking at the resurrection of Christ and the response of of those who look into it. And this morning, uh, all of us are looking into the resurrection. Every single one of us that has gathered this morning has some opinion, uh, some thought, some belief about the resurrection. And um, really, the Bible and Jesus calls unto us this morning to, to look at the resurrection, to, to, to come up with what, what do you do with the resurrection. In the story this morning, in particular, are two people who had been following Christ's ministry for a number of years. Two faithful disciples, you might call them Christians, two religious men, but the resurrection didn't fit into their understanding and their belief in Jesus Christ. And maybe that's what describes you listening here this morning. Uh, Maybe you're someone who, you're religious, you have some beliefs, uh, you don't know exactly maybe what religion you believe in, maybe you do claim to be a Christian in some form. This morning, let's look and see at these two men and really ask some questions. Because what is proposed to us in the Scripture this morning leaves us with no middle ground. What's proposed through the empty tomb really is that, that you must have a decision to make based on one side or the other. Either Jesus is risen from the grave, and if He is, if Jesus is alive today, it changes everything And it has a personal impact, in fact, an eternal impact on your soul. But if Jesus Christ was not risen from the grave, if there was another scheme, or if he lays in the grave still, then then we have just foolishness among us to discuss today. Which of those fits more closely into what you believe? In Luke chapter 24, I ask that you would follow along with me, beginning in verse number 1, but chiefly our passage will be found starting in verse 13. But let's read together in verse number 1 of Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb and stopping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves And he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And behold, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked with him on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And they, while they still disbelieved for joy and marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Thus says the word of God. Let's pray. 
Father, break open the bread of life for us this morning. That all who are in the sound of your word this morning might take of this bread. Oh Lord, mercifully unveil the unbelieving eyes. Let them behold you, Jesus. Remove every distraction from the heart. Remove the evil one from, from laying upon layers of unbelief. And may all behold Christ in this hour. We pray this in his name. Amen. So one person summarized what just took place in this way. The sun burned midday hot. All was quiet. Even the birds refused to sing in this oppressive heat. Cleopas, the disciple, one of the two, kicked a clod of dried mud from the dusty road, drew a large breath, and blew out his cheeks in a weary sigh. Squinting into the haze, he could barely make out the next ridge. Beyond that lay Emmaus, home. Sunset would be on them before their arrival. Normally they would have left Jerusalem sooner. After all, it was a three-hour walk. But the events of the morning had kept them hanging back, wishing for more concrete news. Emmaus wasn't much of a town, but today it seemed very attractive to them. Any place but Jerusalem, with its yelling rabble, its Roman cohorts, its governor, Pontius Pilate. Cleopas' heavy thoughts were jerked back to the present as his irritated companion asked a question for the second time. The two of them had been discussing the day's events, the last few years' events, until it seemed no detail could be dissected more. Cleopas was tired, but more than that, he was confused by all that had transpired in Jerusalem. These days, it seemed life held more questions than it did answers. Trudging down the hill, they rounded a bend. It was then that they met the stranger. Hours later, the same day, the same night, when the two of them stood hot and sweaty before their friends back in Jerusalem, for it was there they had rushed, they couldn't have given an answer to how the stranger had joined the twosome. At first, Cleopas thought he had stepped out of the shadow of a big boulder, but that didn't jive with his friend's explanation. The bottom line was they just weren't sure where this stranger had come from. <laughs> Lamely, Cleopas had said that the stranger had kind of, well, sort of, he, he appeared. That had been met with some derisive statements about the heat and too much sun. But one thing they were sure of, the stranger had taken that ancient collection of books, the Bible, and started at the very beginning, and over the next several hours had explained it in a way that made incredible sense. The stranger's message had driven all despondency and doubt from their minds. So thrilled were they by their new understanding that they had hurried all the way back to Jerusalem to tell their friends about the stranger. And there's something we need to recognize about this stranger this morning. Is that Jesus, that stranger, meets these two disciples struggling in their doubts right where they are. And friend, this morning, the word of God comes to you by the sound of the preaching this morning, through the voice of Jesus coming to meet you where you are, wherever you are this morning. 
the Word of God and the Spirit of God brings to you a message from the Word this morning, meeting you wherever you are. Maybe you're listening to the message this morning and Jesus is someone who, you know a lot of those people who say they follow Him. They don't seem much different. As a matter of fact, they make the headlines a lot for, for failing a lot. Uh, you know that Jesus, he's cloistered in some cathedrals where there's gold and silver and why are the poor still around if, if churches have all the money? Uh, you know that Jesus, it seems like just another myth. Someone rose from the grave. Sure, it's been exaggerated through the years. Surely someone didn't rise from the grave. Something else must be the explanation. Listen, my friend, this morning. The Word of God is coming into your hearing to meet you wherever you are. In your questions and in your doubts. Because Jesus loves to meet you where you are. Because He knows you can't come to Him. This is the nature of our God, by the way. It's always been the story of God to want to dwell among His people. From ever since time began, God dwelt with Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in this world. And ever since then, God has sought to dwell with His people. And in day to come, God says He will be at the center of His people in eternity forever. But now in Jesus, in Jesus, God desires to dwell with you. And Jesus is willing to meet you. You need to know that. Not only is He able to meet you where you're at in your doubts and your unbelief and your lack of trust, in your confusion, you don't know all the answers, you haven't peered into all of it, but you're pretty sure it's something made up. Not only is Jesus able to meet you, but He's willing to meet you. No matter where you are in your faith this morning. And firstly, Jesus wants to probe into your heart, just like He probes into the heart of these disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus wants to probe into your heart, and He wants to probe into the pain of your heart. He wants to probe into the pain of your heart. What do you think is the deepest pain that exists in your heart this morning? Think on it. What is the deepest pain in your heart? In the Bible, we learn that ultimately the greatest suffering of the human heart is the curse of sin that resides within us. More deadly than any disease, more broadly stroke, more broadly applicable than any epidemic. Sin is an infection of the heart of which there is no inoculation. Without Jesus Christ, the sinful heart, the human heart, is lost and hopeless. And the greatest suffering of every human and the greatest part of the suffering of every human experience is the brokenness of our sinfulness. And no doubt this morning that you would be willing to be honest and say that you are a sinful person. You, have, you are aware that you are not a righteous person. You have sinned. Jesus wants to probe into that this morning. And as uncomfortable as it may be, Jesus wants to probe into your pain. And you say, oh, that feels so awful, and it does. None of us enjoy the dentist's chair. 
None of us enjoy being underneath the scalpel of a surgeon. But we know that it is also necessary for us to have ultimate healing. And we, so to speak, bite the bullet. And this morning, God looks within this passage unto our hearts. And He desires for Jesus Christ in, in walking with these two disciples to probe the pain. And part of the pain that is part of the anguish of, these, of the souls of these two men walking on this road is found in, in three false assumptions. And that is that they only are thinking of part of the story. They have come to hear about the suffering of Jesus Christ. Maybe they have been gathered around in that great throng at Golgotha. But they knew for sure that this one whom they had followed for some years now, this one who had raised Lazarus from the grave, raised a young, a young girl from the grave, and had healed countless diseases and even restored limbs and sight, this one who could calm the storm and, and cast legions of devils from a, a man's wrecked body, this one hung on a cross in the middle between two criminals. And they had seen it with their own eyes. This one who had such mastery over nature and over demons and over all of the earth and all of the powers of the earth. This one now hung on the cross like a helpless victim. And to them they saw what they could see in their eyes was that Jesus' suffering did not seem to lead to exaltation. The only exaltation that they could see was a parody and a mockery of a crown of thorns that was crushed upon the brow of Jesus' head. That to them spoke of no kingdom of heaven. For this King who said, for such is the kingdom of heaven. The second part of their unbelief rested in that Christ's suffering did not lead unto any certain resurrection. They had heard the tale of the women who had gone to complete the embalming of the body. They had heard the story of Peter and John and how there was a little bit of a buzz among the eleven disciples remaining. But leaving Jerusalem that day, they just didn't know what to make of it because resurrection didn't fit into their understanding of who God is. Their God didn't need to die. And therefore, their God didn't need to rise again. But thirdly, the other part of the story, that was only part of the story, is that they believe that Christ's suffering did not lead to any sort of victory. Because now it seemed that one who had promised that to Israel would be the kingdom, to the one that had promised that at my right hand you would sit on thrones, to this one it seemed that Rome would have its day. To this one a centurion would would supervise the excruciating finality, the, the, the last breath and sigh of this great king. Where is the victory of the one who has bled to death on this cruel cross? And so, yes, there's a lot of talking that takes place in the hours of traveling those seven miles in the evening on that day. There was a lot of discussion back and forth where they had exhausted all of the memories and the teachings of Christ. And now as they approach Emmaus, it seems they have nothing left to speak of. And it is then that Jesus arrives. And He begins to unfold for them that what they have been sharing all along is only part of the story. In our technical terms, 
The story was buffering. But Jesus would hit play and continue on the story. You see, their faith had become distraught. Now, believer, I think the message is here for Christians as well. It is entirely possible and it is common that often Christians can become very discouraged and overwhelmed. Things don't add up. Suffering doesn't seem to lead to exaltation. Suffering doesn't seem to lead to resurrection or resurrection seems too far off. Where, O Lord, is your help? I don't need it then. I need it now. And suffering doesn't seem to bring victory. And they exhibit a faith or a faithlessness that is common, I find, in the Christian experience. And as they retell the story, it's just too much for them to hear and to understand. The sadness and the emotion that laid heavy on their hearts is is more of unbelief than it is really even grief. And perhaps that speaks to you this morning, that it isn't so much so that that you languish in grief, but it's that unbelief is its own grief. The doubts and the confusion that haunt your mind and heart this morning. The unanswered questions of why and what if and where. They themselves add a layer of grief that nothing seems to assuage. They have heard the testimonies of the two or three women. They've heard the testimonies of the disciples. But they haven't seen the body. And they're unwilling to believe. Essentially, it comes down to this. But for these two disciples, they are unwilling to recognize that the death of the Christ would need to be his ministry. All the Old Testament speaks of the death of a perfect sacrifice that was so needed for man's ultimate redemption. All of the Old Testament spoke that suffering leads to glory. That suffering leads to exaltation. And now before them is God Himself suffering. But was that what was needed? Suffering. None of us like that word. Likely you've taken some pills today to alleviate some suffering. We don't like the sound of suffering. We don't like the sound of suffering because we don't like suffering. We don't like that our loved ones would suffer. But for the sinful, unbelieving heart, it also doesn't like the sound of suffering. For those who will refuse to look upon Jesus, they don't like the sound of suffering. Because if we are especially concerned that, that someone suffered then we would have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why would Jesus suffer? Why would God, who has no need to suffer, why would the one who lives in paradise, why would the one who enjoys painless bliss become the one who would hang upon a cross and become the ultimate victim to those whom he even he even loved. We don't like to hear 
that his suffering might have something to do with us. The fact is, Jesus needed to suffer for us just as the scriptures described our painful condition. So the scriptures describe our wonderful solution. Our sin cost Jesus his life. You say, it's not that bad. Doing things wrong, everybody does them. I can't help it sometimes. I've tried, but I also try to be okay. I try to be good. Nobody's perfect. We don't like to hear that, that as a matter of fact, our sinfulness would be the reason why someone would suffer. But the Bible describes our sinfulness as being that bad. That the wages, the payment for our breaking of the law of God would mean not just a slap on the wrist, not just a wink and a nod and telling us we're okay, but that someone would have to die. And the Bible describes just very simply the results of our sin, and that is either that we can die as a result of our sin, we can be condemned and banished from God for all of eternity as a result of our sin, or God will place His Son in the way, in the way of you. He will place His Son. God Himself will volunteer to become your substitute. So when the mallet hits the bar from the judge and the guilty verdict is read, it is then placed upon not you, but the sentence of guilty is placed upon the one who stands in your place in God's holy courtroom. And it is God Himself in Jesus Christ who becomes, who offers to become your substitute. If you do not think that your sin is so bad that it doesn't cost someone suffering, then you have no idea of what it means to have a substitute. But this morning, the Word of God brings to you in the hearing of your ears, in the hearing of your heart, that you need a substitute. Just like these two disciples who left Jerusalem. They did not understand the full extent of the meaning of the suffering of Jesus. They also, by necessity, did not understand the full meaning of what it means that Jesus rose from the grave. Because if you do not understand the suffering, then you do not understand the resurrection. And so Jesus meets you and I here, right where we're at. He met the strangers on the road, and He opens up the Scriptures, and He explains. Jesus exalts the Scriptures. You see, if you've ever approached the Bible and trying to understand its meaning, and, and you look at the Bible as 66 stories, that is to say, 66 individual books, maybe some of them are sequels because there's a one and a two, and all you read is 66 stories, then you've completely missed the story. Because from beginning to end, from cover to cover, in the Word of God is just one story about one person and it's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Rescuer. And Jesus simply 
explains this to these two strangers. That what they had in front of them the whole entire time in the 39 books of the Old Testament that was written by the time that these two men were walking on this road, Jesus explains to them that every single book spoke His name. And so Luke records that Jesus, beginning with Moses, by the way, that's the book of Moses, the first book of Moses, the book of Genesis. Beginning with Moses and to all the prophets, all the way to the end of your Old Testament, to Malachi, he spoke of, not Daniel. He didn't speak of King David. He didn't speak of sweet Ruth or loyal Esther. He didn't speak of courageous Moses and strong Joshua. He didn't speak of covenanting Abraham. He didn't speak of the faithful prophet Jeremiah who wept for his people. Oh, my friend, he didn't speak of all the characters saying that they were all heroes. But beginning with Moses and the prophets, Luke says he explained himself. And Jesus is the chief character and he is the chief theme of all of the scriptures. Before Jesus reveals that he is the one walking with the two disciples, he begins to take careful attention and unfold and give preeminence of the Bible. Now listen, the Bible is where we learn who Jesus Christ is. It is the revelator of truth. It is where you and I must needs go to find out unchanging truth. This book is like no book that has ever been written because in this book is the words of life. This book was written by an unchanging God and it has eternal words. That is, this book will, will never vanish away and not a single word will go unfulfilled that has been ever spoken by this book. This book is all about Jesus. And when we want to learn about who Jesus is, we don't look at other people. And we want to learn about who Jesus is. We don't believe in dreams and we don't believe in visions. When we want to learn about who Jesus is, we open up the book that He wrote and we find Him to be in the middle of it and then we find it to be a reliable account. And so Jesus takes the book to tell who He is. He doesn't even just take first person form and explain who He is. Jesus trusts in the Bible. And we can trust in the Bible's revelation of Him too. And so before Jesus reveals who He is, He takes the Word that they have and He unfolds it, He opens it up and He shows His preeminence that it was all about Him. It's as if Jesus gives credit to the Scripture for accurately revealing who He is. He says, here is who I am in 39 books. You could see accurately a representation of Myself. Jesus has confidence in the explanation of the Scriptures to fully reveal who He is. And so confident is Jesus that He uses the Scriptures to reveal Himself rather than just blatantly announcing His presence in an instant with these disciples. Could Jesus, walking on that road, have said, pulled back His sleeve on His robe and said, It is I. And the discussion would have been all done. As faithful a testimony as the wounds of Jesus Christ. 
so faithful a testimony do we have in the recorded Word of God. We have a pure and true reckoning. We have a steadfast testimony in the Word of God this morning. Jesus shows for us that He really is the model expositor, the model teacher and preacher. Jesus asks probing questions and He brings about a broad and deep knowledge of the Scriptures and He articulates very clearly and simply who God is and what His purpose is. The fact is that in this we learn this one lesson. That if you have the Word of God, if you have a copy of the Scriptures today, you are accountable to know what those Scriptures teach. And He says to them, O foolish men. O foolish men. It wasn't that these men didn't go to church. It wasn't that these men didn't have a copy of the Word of God or have it memorized. It wasn't that these men were, were not devout or devoted or dedicated, for they had stuck around Jerusalem in the middle of this chaos. But listen, what was wrong with these men is that they were foolish because they did not know what the Scriptures taught. The Scriptures through the books of Moses revealed that there was a sacrifice needed to cover Adam and Eve. That there would be sacrifices repeated moment by moment, day by day, and annually for the sins of Israel. Sacrifice upon sacrifice. Ultimately, there would be even a a Passover sacrifice that these men themselves had just observed just a day or two before. Leviticus 17.11 explained everything about it. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Life of the flesh is in the blood. And Jesus and God said in Leviticus 17 to the people of Israel, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement. You see, these men walking on this road, they knew that that sin causes death. And that sin caused death and that God would accept the death of a substitute instead of them. Countless were the lambs that they had brought to be sacrificed. But they also knew that no animal could ever ultimately cover the stain of sin upon their heart and no animal sacrifice could satisfy God completely. And because they had to offer another animal and another one and and really exhaustingly an animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice. And listen, you may be here today and you say, I I don't try to cover my sin by killing a lamb. That's kind of silly and old school. Can I ask you something? What do you cover your sin with? Could it be that you cover your sin with just trying to be better next time? Just trying to work harder. You're going you're to be a different person now. Yeah, that was really wrong. You feel really bad about it, but you're just going to turn the page and you know, try to do better. 
My friend, none of our works are sufficient to cover our sin. The sin has stained our hearts so deeply that you see our hearts need washing, not covering. No day of atonement for Israel. That one day when as a nation of Israel they would, they would symbolically lay the hands and lay their sin upon this one ultimate sacrifice. No day of atonement would satisfy for year after year would be another sacrifice. And every Jew, these men included, knew that sin brings death. That soul that sins it shall die. Die means separation. It means the coming of judgment. And every Jew knew that God would provide a substitute and so they would constantly be bringing lambs. But every Jew knew that there would never be a final substitute that they could offer. But they had pictures of what that final substitute would look like. Small pictures over and over. And it would have to be not them, not their good attempts to to be meritorious, to do good things. It would have to be something outside of themselves that could take care of themselves. It would have to be an external force that would wash away, that would sweep away, that would cleanse away the guilt, that would finally separate their guilt and their guilt consciousness from their account For no matter how much good they could do, they could never have their sins forgiven totally. It would have to be someone other than themselves who could redeem them. And every Jew knew that there was coming that one. But they had been looking and there was never, in their view, a final substitute. There would never be a sufficient sacrifice. There would never be satisfaction from God. From God's wrath. And that's the part that they needed to know. As Jesus unfolded the scriptures from Moses to the prophets, he said to them, You have heard sacrifice upon sacrifice. But now, ultimately, did you not behold the altar on Golgotha? Did you not behold the one who... John said, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I have come, as the Scriptures have told, to be the ultimate, the Lamb of Lambs to take away the sin of the world. There wouldn't be anybody else in glory if Jesus wouldn't suffer. Jesus was telling the strangers, these two men on the road, Cleopas and the other disciple, Jesus was telling them, listen, there's no other Messiah coming. If you're here today and you're hearing the witness of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and you're saying, I'm going to wait till I hear something better. I'm going to wait until I hear something more believable. I'm going to wait until I hear something that I agree with. The message of the Word of God in Jesus Christ, and as sure as the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied this morning, is listen, there are no other Messiahs coming to rescue you from your sin. 
If you're waiting for a better Messiah, He's not coming. If you're waiting until the judgment day when you can plead your case and say, I will be my own Messiah. Just look at my track record. My friend, there is no substitute for the one who God sent to you. And when you reject that Messiah, God rejects you. He is the Messiah. He is the only Messiah. He's the only one. And the only way we'll ever enter into glory with the Messiah is through His death because of our sin. The fact is that these men, while they had the Scriptures, yeah, they had heard the Gospel story. They had heard a lot from Jesus. He had prophesied many times that He would, that he would be killed He would be executed. And on the third day, He would rise from the grave. But the fact is that they were selective about what they believed. That is, they they pick and choose, like a cafeteria style of the Bible. Like, well, I mean, part of the Bible speaks to me. Part of it really kind of, you know, it jives, there's some good stuff in it. Not all of it. But the fact is that partial knowledge is disastrous. Partial knowledge is disastrous. And partial belief, listen folks, partial belief, I, sure, I'm willing to assent there was a historical figure named Jesus and the Christian church makes much about him and and we're okay. I mean, I kind of know him. He knows me. We're okay. Partial belief is unbelief. Listen, it's not that they didn't believe in that which they didn't know about. That is to say, they didn't believe in what they knew. Do you believe in what you know from the Word of God? Do you believe or will you believe in gaining this knowledge this morning? Will you hear? Will you believe in what is being shared with you today? Will you allow it to fill in the gaps of what you have come to know and what you've come to believe who God is. Maybe you've heard just partial things here and there. But this morning, the message to you is that, is that God is holy. And that God is perfect. And He exists in glorious splendor, in ultimate perfection, untainted and unstained by any failure. And the second truth is that man is sinful. You say, of course he is. Of course man is sinful. I see it on the headlines all around. Every day it just blasts in front of my eyes. Man is sinful. And then us, we are sinful. We, we would be willing to admit this morning, we are sinful. Are you willing to admit that this morning? If you're willing to admit that you're sinful, if God is speaking to your heart and revealing that to you, then there's really good news. That's really bad news. Is that you're lost and there's nothing you can do as a sinner to get to that place where God is, to be reconciled unto God, to, to know your Creator, and to finally have peace ruling in your heart. That's really bad news. You can't do anything about it. My friend, there's nothing you can do to please God. There is nothing you can do. 
The Bible says that you are lost in your sin and that someday there is a paycheck coming and it is eternal separation. Eternal separation from everything good and of everything pleasurable, but ultimately eternal separation, the Bible says, in a place called hell. That's what the word death means. And every person who refuses to trust that Jesus Christ is their Savior goes there. Sadly, Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. That is, that there are many people who upon hearing about Jesus Christ and His saving mercies, they will still refuse to look upon Him and trust in Him for His forgiveness, forsaking their sins and follow Him. And so the Bible says, Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that find it. And Jesus says, narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting. Why is it narrow? Because there's only one person that it goes through. And it doesn't go through you. The narrow gate that leads to life everlasting is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. It doesn't matter what religion you hold to. It doesn't matter whether you got wet in baptism. It doesn't matter whether you go to church faithfully or you've never been to church one time in your life. It doesn't matter. When you, by faith, through grace, look upon Jesus Christ and say, Savior, save me lest I die. If you're that person, to you, life everlasting. We live in a world where there's great physicists. There's people who have figured out how to make hydraulics work. There's people who have figured out hydrostatics. Sir Isaac Newton uncovered the law of gravity and explained it. We have uh, Albert Einstein, whose theory of relativity explains all sorts of things, you know. But some of the most imaginative physicists that, that we could ever see, and all of us have seen some of their teachings, are the Warner Brothers. You know, those cartoonists. The, cor- the cartoon characters, really, they have rewritten every physical law known to man. None of the well-tested laws of physics seem sacred to the Warner Brothers when they come on screen with their, with their animated characters. They become sort of an innovative neo-scientist. And deep within their creative drawing rooms and their laboratories with sketched uh, drawings and pencil in hand, they, these Warner Brothers have taught us something about physics, for example. How a body suspended in midair will remain in midair until the subject is made aware that he's in midair. And at this point, the law of gravity kicks in. We find out also from this, in this, their, their version of physics, that the law of gravity is selective. Everything falls faster than an anvil. 
We learn from these Warner Brothers physicists that a body, if moving fast enough, can go through solid matter, leaving a perfect cookie-cutter hole. No matter what the wall was made of. We also learn that during rapid motion, some objects will momentarily appear in a stationary position while the balance of the body continues to move forward. We also learn from them that during high-speed high speed chases, certain bodies, most often the roadrunner, they can pass through solid mountains which have been previously painted to resemble a tunnel. And then the coyote can't. We learn cats possess a cosmic glue that allows them to quickly recover when they've been disassembled, accordion-pleated, dynamited, scared, furless, or after they've assumed the shape of any small container they've fallen into. And so really rewriting physical laws and cartoons is, is fun and it's harmless and it just really gives us a break from reality, doesn't it? But that's really only... Looney Tune type thinking. The same thing is true when it comes to Scripture. Changing or ignoring God's Word to fit into what we want it to say. Changing the Word of God so that it agrees with us rather than we come to an agreement with it. That's Looney Tune theology. And many have tried. Many have tried to approach Scripture in this way. History is littered with people who attempt to rewrite the biblical truth or, or they try to do away with it altogether, trying to outsmart God, the Almighty, the Creator. And there will always be dissenters of the truth. Skeptics will continue to critique the message of the Scriptures and write it off as it's antiquated, it's naive, it's out of touch, it's irrelevant. But they're simply playing the part of a cartoonist. Make-believe is still just make-believe. And the truth will always be the truth. The mountain will always be made of stone. The anvil will always fall as fast as anything else and so on. And no matter how loud or clever our culture may be, two things remain true. Roadrunners can't pass through mountains and God's word is always reliable. So as Jesus then gathered with these two men at their home that day, he sat down and he broke, broke bread and their eyes were open unto who he was. And then, and then he vanished. And we pick up the story in, in verse number 33, looking at your Bibles. Verse 33, And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. You see what's happening here? They got up from their table. It's, it's probably, who knows, 9, 10 at night. We're not sure, but we know it was the evening already where when they were on the road, they sat down to eat a meal. Now it's, it's dark. 
But what do they do? They rise up from their table and they, they go back to Jerusalem seven miles. Probably in a little more of a, a hurried pace than the other stroll. But in the dark, the path that they know well, they, they go back to Jerusalem, no doubt to where they had originated from, from the upper room. And there they find the eleven disciples. And they immediately begin to tell those disciples. The Bible says they found gathered together the eleven. And in John chapter 20, John records that the door is locked, it's bolted. The disciples are, are hunkering down, they're, they're huddling, they don't know what's going on, but they know for sure that they don't want to be blamed for what's going on because they don't have the body and something's awry. So the door is bolted shut. We can see these two men, Cleopas and the other unnamed disciple. They're knocking on the door. Guys, let me in. We just, there's something we've got to tell you. And so they un- unlock the door. And they walk in and they bolt the door shut behind them. The Bible says. Cleopas says unto them. Verse 34. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. These eleven disciples say to them, we, we know that he's risen. But then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. In a sense, they kind of one-up the disciples. No, we saw him. I mean, I, I know he's risen, but we were with him. And so you could just hear them unpacking and they're building this. And the narrative in Scripture doesn't tell this, but you're, you're sort of building. We were walking along and we were talking about the Scriptures and then he, he unfolded you know, Genesis and showed us in Jeremiah. And, and then he says, aha, it's me. And then now here we are. And so they, they must have just been full of wonder and awe. But what we need to see in this opening section of, of really the rest of the New Testament here is that everyone's got the same testimony. We saw Him. We saw Him. It was Him. It was Him. He's alive. He's alive. It's a very consistent testimony. All these appearances and all these professions. And somewhere in the telling, these people are upstaged by Simon. And they say, we have seen Him. And while they are comparing notes, notice verse number 36. While they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them. Oh, don't you love that? The door was bolted. It was shut. They're clamoring, talking about Jesus. And Jesus is among them. Can I say this? That when you're speaking about Jesus with other believers, with other disciples, Jesus is among you. You who know Jesus, you who walk with Jesus, Jesus loves to be among you. And a locked door won't ever hold Jesus back. I know I'm speaking for some who live alone. Your door is locked. Jesus is with you. For those who are brothers and sisters in bonds and chains around the world, experiencing persecution, Jesus is with them. And brother and sister, as we rejoiced in the risen Lord this morning and sang songs to Him, do you know that Jesus heard because He's here? 
And he is no less here than he was here in the scriptures. And he says to them, peace be to you. While they're telling their story and dramatizing it, he himself stood in their midst. He had vanished out of the presence up in Emmaus. And now he appeared in a split second from nowhere. And do you know that since that day, in around 33 AD, this has been the triumphant cry of the church of Jesus Christ. That the Lord Jesus is alive. That he is risen from the dead. This is our sermon. This is the end of our belief. This is everything of our belief. This is the invincibility of the church. This makes our message timeless. It makes it contextual. It makes it relevant. It makes it saving and powerful that Jesus today is alive. And this has always been the message of the faithful. And it will continue to be the message of the faithful. That Jesus is alive. This is the invincibility. This makes the church of Christ um, undistinguishable. That is to say, it cannot be extinguished. That Jesus is alive. And this is what the church has always preached. And by God's grace, this is what we preach that Jesus rose from the dead. And the Apostle Peter, when he preached about it, in Acts chapter 2, he said, you killed him, God raised him. In Acts chapter 3, Peter preached, you killed him, God raised him. In Acts chapter 4, you killed him, God raised him. In chapter 5, you killed him, God raised him. In Acts chapter 10, you killed him, God raised him. And on April 9th, 2023, You killed him and God raised him. This continues to be the same message. We don't have to reinvent something. We don't have to make something more palatable. And nothing even more palatable will ever save. We don't change the message. Because that will never save. There's no other Messiah. And everyone who believes in the risen Lord is ultimately triumphant. You feel defeated by your sin. You feel convicted by God's word. You don't like to hear that you're a sinner in need of God's condemnation? That you need saving? My friend, everyone who believes upon the risen Lord is ultimately triumphant. This morning, Jesus has risen in triumph and offers to you in the simplicity of faith. Triumph. Triumph. You probably never thought of yourself as a victor. You probably never even won hardly anything in your life. But this is the greatest victory that has ever been afforded and could ever be given to mankind. And that is victory through the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's not something that you won. It's something that you can receive. Jesus is triumphant over the grave. Do you know anybody who's been triumphant over the grave. And because he's been triumphant over the grave, then he says to us, you can be triumphant over your worst enemy. He is risen. 
and he raises to life all who are dead in their sins. Everyone, listen, everyone who believes upon Jesus Christ receives forgiveness of sins because he paid for that sin debt in full. And the receipt is the empty tomb. He is alive. Let's pray.